Welcome to Risk Roundup. Security is a moving target. It is an unfortunate reality today that almost all advances in science and technology pose potential dual use risk. When risk undermines rewards, better science must provide effective protection against potential security threats. Now, as we see currently in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short, referred to as CGS, we are facing massive security risk. Managing those security risks in CGS is a priority for each nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short, referred to as NGIOA. Now, science can come to the rescue and be at the front line of defense. To be able to do that, we need to unlock the secrets of the human safety, security, and sustainability. What better way to do that than scientists from across nations coming together and collaborating and combining their efforts to decode the human brain? Billions of dollars are being spent today across nations to map the human brain. While understanding of brain is fundamental to advance human and computational intelligence, it is also crucial to identify the security challenges we face today in CGS. There is a hope that understanding the brain circuits, neural pathways, and wiring, mapping the brain, will not only let us understand the command center for the human nervous system better, but it will also let us into the human mind to achieve security. While there are many obstacles the scientific community must overcome before they can successfully use brain science advances for safety and security of humans in CGS, advances have already begun to happen. To discuss brain mapping advances further, I'm honored to welcome Dr. Lawrence Farwell, Chairman and Chief Science Officer at Brain Fingerprinting Laboratories based in United States to risk roundup. Dr. Farwell is a Harvard graduate and Time Magazine named him to the Time 100, the next wave, the top innovators of this century, who may be the Einsteins or Picassos of the 21st century. Welcome, Dr. Farwell. We're honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful, Dr. Farwell. So, Dr. Farwell, <laughs> you have conducted pioneering research in the field of brain-computer interfaces. What does this revolution in human-computer con interaction through EEG-based brain-computer interface allow us to do today, which we could not do so far? Well, there are several things. Uh, first of all, the first brain-computer inter brain interface, or BCI as they're sometimes called, which I developed with my colleagues, allows a person to communicate directly from the brain to a computer using their, using their brainwaves, electrical brain activity. You know, the neurons in the brain fire electrically, and we can pick up those patterns from the outside of the head, non-invasively, with a headset. And we've now developed a way for, for an individual to use his brainwaves to communicate directly to a computer, and from there, for example, to a speech synthesizer. So we published a paper called Talking Off the Top of Your Head, uh, the first paper about brain-computer interfaces, where we showed that you could use brainwaves to communicate with a computer and a speech synthesizer, and a person who was completely paralyzed and couldn't otherwise move or otherwise communicate could communicate directly using his brain. Yes, so that's are, one way. Yes, <laughs> these are amazing advances. I read about that very recently. Uh, so, uh, sorry about that to interrupt. You were, uh, please continue. You were, you know. Yes. Well, another way that uh, knowledge, science, having to do with the brain can contribute to the field of security uh, very directly is through brain fingerprinting, which is a technology that I invented that allows us to detect concealed information stored in the brain. So we can tell if somebody has the record of a terrorist training or a terrorist act that he's committed or uh, some other crime that he's committed. We can tell whether that record's stored in the brain or not. And that way we can distinguish between who's a security risk and who is not. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. Th those are amazing advances and for years, 
neuroscientists have been trying to understand in how and where exactly in the brain the visual information coming through and from our eyes is first transformed into short-term memories and then long-term memories. So this is very significant for what you're talking about, you know, when you're trying to recover the information from the brain uh, to see if there is a, someone, a security threat. So where are the memories stored in the brain and how do we recall them? Well, memories are stored in the brain in a very different way from the way they're stored on a computer. On a computer disk, a particular bit of information or series of bits of information is stored at a particular location. Now, in the human brain, memories are stored very broadly distributed throughout the brain. It's almost as if the, a memory is a tendency for the brain to go into that same state it was when the original event took place. So, brain, uh, so memories are stored very widely in the brain. And what we do in brain fingerprinting is we detect a process of essentially taking note of something, a, a process of, it's an aha experience. For example, we're sitting in the room and an elephant comes into the room. We notice the elephant, we, we, the brain is gonna say, aha, oh, now there's an elephant in the room. Some significant information has come in and that is going to come into our memory system. Well, when we have that aha experience, there's a pattern in the brain waves that takes place called a, a P300, memory and encoding related multifaceted electroencephalographic response or p300 murmur for short and that process lets us know that a person has recognized some significant information so if we want to know if somebody was at a murder scene for example or if someone was a, a trained terrorist we can present information on a computer screen that only a person who for example participated in that murder will recognize or who has had terrorist training will recognize. And they'll have that aha experience. They'll have that pattern in their brainwaves and we can say, all right, that person has that information stored in his brain. For example, one of the first studies we did was with the FBI, where we flashed on a computer screen information that only an FBI agent would recognize due to their unique training. The FBI agents, when they saw that information, their brain would have an aha experience. They say, aha, yeah, they recognize that. Other people wouldn't recognize it because they, they didn't have that knowledge stored in their brain. So we can say definitively with a very high statistical confidence, that person's an FBI agent, that person's not. Similarly, that person's an Al-Qaeda trained terrorist. That person is a member of a terrorist cell. That person was at a crime scene or that person wasn't at a crime scene. So we've used this to put serial killers away and to free innocent people who are falsely accused because they don't have the record of the crime stored in their brain. Yes, that is that is astonishing. That is actually very amazing. Now, since 1780, when Galvani discovered electrical currents and laid the foundation of modern neurophysiology, we have learned to use electrical technology, electrophysiology to study brain function, which you are using too. Now, where are we in terms of advances in electrophysiology? We're using digital EEG systems, electroencephalogram. We can use human brain as a biosensor. Are we any closer to that? Well, certainly we're closer to that. Uh, there have been tremendous advances in neurophysiology, in, in neuroscience, and especially in electroencephalography. Uh, it used to be, well, the, when I first developed brain fingerprinting, the uh, amplifiers we used were about the size of a refrigerator, and the, the computer we used was, was also very large. <laughs> and the headset involved uh, gluing uh, electrodes onto the, onto the head. It wasn't very convenient. And now we have, you, you, you see I'm, I'm wearing a headset with, with earphones. Now a headset that uh, measures brain waves is uh, as small and light as this, can communicate wirelessly with the computer. Uh, we can analyze the brain waves in, in, a, in a laptop computer. So the whole system is much more convenient and lightweight. And we've developed methods of of cleaning up the signal. I mean, in, in any kind of science, distinguishing the signal from the noise, the, the, the stuff that contains information for us versus what doesn't is a, is a major factor. And in neurophysiology, we've discovered more, we've developed more uh, effective ways 
of distinguishing the signal from the noise. So we can now very quickly and very clearly distinguish, it, for example, is a person having this aha experience? Does he recognize this uh, crime relevant or terrorism relevant information we're putting on the screen? We can tell that very quickly and with extremely high accuracy. I mean, we've um, <clears throat> brain fingerprinting has gotten the correct answer in, in every case. Uh, and we've had a very high statistical confidence, over 99.9% .9 statistical confidence in that result. And all of that comes, as you said, from uh, developments in electrophysiology, in electroencephalography. Yes, very true, very true. Now, uh, for the brain fingerprinting to be effective or to you know work as you are suggesting that it is working, bioelectrical signals, we have to you know talk about bioelectrical signals that would that would be at the you know very heart of it they by these bioelectrical signals they can stunt or grow brain tissue the body's electrical activity and also seems to be based on the relative concentration of salts so based on the advances in understanding it is now possible to identify a person with the bioelectrical activity of the brain with 100% success like you are you know talking about so does this mean that everyone have different bioelectrical activity within his or her brain well the answer to that question is there are some fundamental things that are the same and there are some things that are different. I mean, if you if you look at fingers, uh, our fingers are very similar to each other, but the fingerprints are are unique. If you look at a, a the the surface of a brain, which of course you can't see from outside the head, but if you look at the surface of a of the brain, it is also a very there are similar features, and yet each each pattern is unique for an individual. And there are. Uh, electrophysiological patterns also that can be identified that are that are very unique to an individual so yes there are many commonalities and yet there are individual differences that can identify an individual just as our fingerprints can yes yes that is true now cyber warfare has become very complex due to connected computers, computer code and internet and artificial intelligence and all those amazing advances that are happening. Now, irrespective right. of cyberspace, geospace or space, making the world safe and secure is a very complex challenge currently. Every nation is struggling with that. We need better technology that allows security professionals to do their job better. Beyond identification, do you see a role for your technology brain fingerprinting in cyber warfare or traditional warfare? Well, yes, very much so in, in both. In cyber warfare, the identifying who has done what is very difficult because there are no, there are no, there are no uh, fingerprints, there are no footprints, there are no tire prints. Uh, people can have an impact or around the other side of the world instantaneously and they can remove all traces of that. Uh, there was a, a case a while back where some people uh, primarily from Russia managed to infiltrate uh, banks around the world, uh, hundreds of banks around the world and make off with, with many, many millions of dollars uh, and never got caught. And because they didn't leave a trace that anyone could find. Now, there is a record, a very clear and comprehensive record of that crime somewhere. And where that is, it's stored in the brain of the perpetrator. So in that or any other cybercrime where there may be no physical evidence that we can find, there is always a record in the brains of the people who have perpetrated that and even in the brains of the people who have planned it. So we can always, the difference that brain fingerprinting makes is that it used to be that if, if uh, somebody knew something but nobody else knew it, or all the other people who knew it were somehow under his control by bribes or threats or they were in on it too, you couldn't find out who the perpetrators were. Now, if that information is stored in a person's brain, which it always is for any kind of a perpetrator, if that information is stored in the brain, we can detect that record. So the fundamental difference that brain fingerprinting makes is that anybody who is a criminal of any kind, whether it's a cyber criminal or any other kind, can never count on getting away with it. Because as long as that record is stored in his brain, we can detect that record. 
the same in conventional warfare. Well, of course, warfare today is is not as conventional. Is not conventional in in the sense that it used to be. But in in conventional warfare, as as distinct from cyber warfare, again identifying who our enemies are and who the threats are is a very major part of it. Uh, I was talking with the uh, general who had been at the time in charge of special operations in Iraq. And they said that their military operations today were more similar to crime fighting uh, in, in other times. When they were going out on a mission, they would know who they were looking for. They would know who, uh, what that person had done or what they thought that person had done. So again, identifying who our enemies are is a big part of even conventional warfare these days. And brain fingerprinting can contribute to that because we can detect the record in the brain. Somebody's a bomb maker versus just an innocent person who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or someone has undergone training, terrorist training or someone has perpetrated a terrorist act. We can make those distinctions now scientifically, whereas we didn't used to be able to do that. Yes, you are absolutely right that the identification is at the center of the all the warfare that is going on so this technology brain fingerprinting is gives us an ability to identify accurately who would be who is a criminal who is a terrorist uh, irrespective of its cyber warfare or traditional warfare so uh, yeah. warfare is one thing and criminal justice is another do you see brain fingerprinting becoming as effective as DNA analysis for criminal justice in the coming years? Yes, I do. Uh, brain fingerprinting has been proven to be uh, over 99% accurate. Actually, we've gotten the correct answer in every case, but in science, there's no such thing as quote unquote 100%. So we don't say it's 100% accurate. But we have actually gotten <laughs> the correct answer so far 100% of the time. It's very, very important that the scientific standards for brain fingerprinting are met. When I say we, it's brain fingerprinting has gotten the correct answer in every case, that is when the, when the science is applied properly. Like any other science, brain fingerprinting must meet the scientific standards. And we've published, my colleagues and I have published the brain fingerprinting scientific standards in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. We've tested it at the FBI, at the CIA, at the US Navy, in actual criminal cases where it's been ruled admissible in court. So as long as the scientific standards are met, we can get a very, a very high level of accuracy and we can identify people in criminal justice and in, in any field. Also, DNA and fingerprints are only available in about 1% of crimes. The brain is always there. The brain of the perpetrator is always there. So in a very high percentage of, of crimes, uh, Dr. Drew Richardson of the FBI estimates in 70 to 80% of crimes, there'll be enough information stored in the brain that we'll be able to detect that through brain fingerprinting. So it, in terms of accuracy, it's comparable to DNA. In terms of applicability, how many cases it can be applied, rather than just 1%, 2% of the cases, brain fingerprinting can be applied in a majority of cases. That is absolutely amazing. So irrespective of what kind of crime gets committed inside <laughs> your space, our space, brain fingerprinting now has the ability and power to measure and record that crime. This is a game changer for the security industry. How is this received? Well, it is received in, in two very different ways by two different uh, groups of people. There are people in in high places in government and in business and in the military and in the world who are deeply committed to bringing out the truth. And brain fingerprinting is very well received by such people. Unfortunately, there are people, including people in some high places in the world, who do not want to see the truth come out and who are, who are committed to stopping the truth from coming out. So like any new discovery, there has been some resistance to brain fingerprinting. There are people who have expended a tremendous amount of time, effort, and resources trying to stop the truth from coming out about brain fingerprinting because they don't want the truth to come out about them. And that's, that's to be expected. That is expected. That is expected in addition every time we uh, are trying to change a system. I mean, at this point, uh, the system is that lie detector, polygraph test, DNA, fingerprinting, all of the that are widely used, commonly used all across nations. Now that has 
that is a very strongly established uh, system now to we have a better system that you have developed and to be able to uh, make a break so that you know we replace the system requires a lot more effort and a lot more understanding than the effectiveness of science there are you know political factors involved there are a lot of other you know variables involved so uh, even if we know that it is like you said and uh, like you know there's a from based on what research i did and what i read that there is an accuracy but to be able to replace these or to make it widely accepted and used is going to require a lot of effort and we'll have to see how that goes forward so let's talk about polygraphy test uh, you know before we go to our next point is that polygraphy test i think they rely on emotional responses and brain fingerprinting records how your brain you know reacts to words or images or re related to any memory of a crime and words and images only the criminal or guilty would recognize so is it fair to say that brain fingerprinting based on what you have you know observed over the years on the with doing the testing with fbi and you know uh, during experiments you know in other places that this has a potential to become a lie detector test for the 21st century but that you know there are complex challenges to be overcome to be able to uh, be considered widely for that is that accurate yes that's accurate although we wouldn't actually call it a, a, a lie detector test because it's really an information detector test yes we detect whether the record of the crime is stored in the brain now what what a conventional polygraph attempts to do is to measure an emotional stress response with the idea being when a person is lying they're more stressed there there can there's been some uh, considerable controversy about about that the degree to which being stressed means the person is lying uh, so that's one reason that the polygraph is not admissible as evidence in court and brain fingerprinting has been ruled admissible as evidence in court because it's based on very solid and very precise science. It doesn't depend on the emotions. Now, you mentioned that there is resistance to innovation in, in all fields. Uh, that's very true. Uh, one of my favorite books is called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And he points out that it's not enough simply to discover the truth or to make a, a scientific, a major scientific advance what also has to take place, as you pointed out, is that it has to become more widely accepted. And the beneficiaries of the status quo, whether it was the people who wanted the Earth to be the center of the universe, or the people who wanted the Earth to be flat, or believed it was flat, uh, or any other uh, outmoded method of thinking, there's tremendous resistance to innovation because people have their, their careers and their respect in society and and their financial well-being connected to sometimes ideas and technologies and science that is outdated or that has been replaced whenever there's a major new discovery when there's a scientific revolution so it's not only a matter of getting the word out it's a matter there's active resistance from the beneficiaries of the status quo and that's taken place with brain fingerprinting it's no exception that is very true but but i think we are living in a very different time now if you look at financial industry that you know was very resistant to any change happening for probably you know decades or centuries but now blockchain blockchain technology is fundamentally changing everything if wherever you see you will see you know some uh, prototypes are you know being worked on where blockchain will replace the trading blockchain will replace you know how we do things uh, everything is changing so hopefully this you know the changes that are happening all across us security community will be able to see what benefit and what strength and what advantage is this technology this approach of like you said information recognition not lie detector information detection test could bring to their efforts to manage the securities that is uh, you know facing them all across nations all across industries government industries organization academia in cyberspace in geospace or even in space in the coming years that this kind of technology would be at the heart of it now let's talk about uh, the murmur the p300 that you mentioned earlier so yes 
when the human brain recognizes important information, it triggers a specific electrical signal called murmur uh, that can be measured and analyzed. Now, when a person sees something familiar, as you said before, it seems that the surge of electrical activity in the EEG wave usually arises in 300 milliseconds. How does yes. this P300 relevant to security? Is it just to uh, acknowledge that that aha moment, as you mentioned before, that it is that moment has been you know recognized? Well, yes. Uh, we we store in our brain. We have in our brain a picture of the current or uh, an understanding of the current environment. We know what's going on. We know what's in our physical environment and we know we know the rules. We know what to expect. And we carry that around in our brain. We close our eyes, we still know what's what's in the room. We still know what's going on around us. As I mentioned before, if a door opens and an elephant comes into the room, all of a sudden we have new information that is very important. That needs to be incorporated into our internal representation of the current operating environment. And that process, I called it an aha experience, or it can be called context updating. That process results in the neurons firing in very specific patterns in the brain. It's a fundamental thing that all human beings do when we take note of something significant. And that process creates this P300 murmur. That's why we called it memory and encoding related multifaceted electroencephalographic response. It's related to that, uh, that encoding in memory of the new information that's coming in. And it's a multifaceted response in that it has different, different facets that we can recognize mathematically and, and analyze when we're, when we're detecting the response. So yes, it is a fundamental human response and it can be used in, in a variety of ways. And one of, one of the major ways is that we can tell what information is stored in the brain. Because when somebody recognizes something, if you present a series of, of words or pictures, uh, for example, as we mentioned to, the, to an FBI agent, and some of them are relevant to the FBI and some of them are irrelevant, or similarly, uh, information about a crime scene that only the perpetrator and investigators would know. When the person who knows that information sees that, recognizes it, he's going to say, aha, yeah, that's it. And he won't maybe say that verbally. He might not give any external indication, overt indication that he recognizes it, but the brain is going to say, aha, there will be that pattern, there will be that P300 murmur, and we can pick that up. Yes, yes. Now, a critical task of the criminal justice system or security system is to dis distinguish criminals or hackers or terrorists from innocent suspects. Now, terrorists, hackers, criminals, they know who they are and they know what they have done or what they want to do. They have that information stored in the brain, like you have been explaining, in how to, in the crime that they have already committed. But if they have the information in their brain in how to do a crime, they are plotting to do a crime, they're planning to do a, you know, hacking or, you know, they're planning to do some kind of crime. Is that possible to detect? Because while we have talked about identifying criminals after they commit crime, can brain fingerprinting help prevent crimes? Yes, it can. And one of the studies that I did with the CIA, we actually uh, detected information uh, where we didn't yet know uh, what was going to happen. For example, let's say we have a, a terrorist in custody and we know that he is he and his uh, cohorts are planning to uh, blow up a major building in Washington, D.C., but we don't know which one. But he knows which one. Well, we can find that out before it even happens. Similarly, with a, a cybercrime that has been planned but not yet committed, we can detect that information stored in the brain. Now, we need to know what we're looking for. We can't just uh, do a memory dump of the whole brain. We have to know what things to present. So we have to basically give the brain a, a multiple choice test. We know it's this kind of information in general, but we don't know the specifics. Is it going to be this building or that building? or 
is it, is it going to be th this particular kind of a cyber attack or that kind of a cyber attack? What will be the targets and so on? We can detect that information. As long as we know what we're looking for, we can detect the information of the planning of a crime that has already taken place. We can detect the information about the planning of a crime that has not yet taken place. That is absolutely amazing. I, this is game-changing. So when we measure information in the brain, we don't measure whether we are anxious or whether we are not anxious, whether we are lying or whether we are not lying. We simply measure a brain response that tells us that if that information is present in the brain. So, but looking at, you know, when you look at all these uh, electrical, you know, waves and all that, you know, when you take that into consideration, how salt level uh, and everything, you know, changes the biochemistry of a human being. Brain signals also have chemical dependency. So how do we take that into consideration when we are doing the analysis? Well, they do have chemical dependencies and each person's brain responses will be somewhat different from anyone else's. There will be this recognizable pattern. There is a standard pattern, a P300 murmur. We can know what to look for, but it'll be a little bit different for you or for me or for another person. And that's why we have a, con a control built into the experiment. So we've, I've mentioned that we present information and we can tell if the person recognizes it or not. We also, we, we mix that in in a series, the things that we're looking for, the things we're trying to determine. We mix that in in a series with other information. Now, some of that other information is irrelevant. Some of it, and this is the control aspect, some of it is information that we know the person knows. So we actually present information, say we're investigating a crime, we'll present information about that crime that the person already knows. Uh, they may know from reading the newspaper or whatever, or if they don't know anything, we'll tell them some information about the crime. So now we have information that the person knows, we have information the person doesn't know, and we have information we're trying to find out if he knows or not. What we do is we use that person's brain responses to known information to create a template. So now we have a standard, it's a P300 murmur, but it's this particular person's P300 murmur. It has a particular shape to it. It has a particular mathematical characteristics to the brain waves that are unique to that person. And then identify very precisely, this is what that brain does when it's detecting something that it, that it knows, that the person knows. And then we, we have that same brain's response to irrelevant information that they don't recognize. Then we take the information that is the information of interest, we call these probes, these, these words or pictures that we want to find out if the person recognizes. And we record the responses to those, and then we classify it mathematically. Does this response to these things we're trying to find out about, does that match the response to things that he knows, or does that match the response to things that this person doesn't know? And we can come up with a mathematical determination. Information present, information absent. He knows it or he doesn't. And that depends on the, the, the accuracy of that, depends on our dealing specifically, not only with this general pattern, but with the way that particular brain implements that pattern, which is unique. Yes, yes, no, that makes sense. Now, electrical activity in the brain is also found after individuals are announced clinically dead. There are reports that electrical activity in brain gets also impacted by heavy alcohol consumption. So we need to understand how events like these influence the brain waves that are measured. Is there any way that the brain fingerprinting test might be invalidated because of any of those factors? I mean, you told, you just described that you know you do those control experiments. So, uh, in a way that you are able to, uh, you know, do those controls that would take away those possibility of having the you know false positive test, but. Do, they, do you consider all these variables when you do the test? Well, yes. The thing is, that's why the control is so important. Yes. Because we have, for example, J.B. Grinder. He was turned out to be a serial killer. He was a murder suspect. I tested his brain waves. He had gotten away with murder. He literally got away with murder for 15 years. And I, when I met him, he was a suspect in a murder of a particular woman named Julie Helton. I presented information through a brain fingerprinting test. 
about specific details about that murder, it turned out that that information was stored in his brain. So one week later, after getting away with murder for 15 years, one week after the brain fingerprint test, he realized he was going to be convicted. He realized he was probably going to get the death penalty. So he pled guilty in exchange for life in prison. He also then confessed to the murders of three other young women in addition to this one. Now, he was on drugs and alcohol at the time of the crime. He was on excuse me, he was on psychotropic drugs, uh, psychotherapeutic drugs at the time of the test. And we got very clear brainwave responses because that's, again, why the control is so important because certainly there are many things that affect the brainwaves. And you know, some of them will make, make your brainwaves, uh, the, the responses won't be as large, for example. But when we have a control, we're testing this brain. What, what does this brain do when this brain recognizes information in its current condition, whatever that condition is. Today, now, at this time, at this test, here's what this brain does with information it recognizes. Here's what it does with information it doesn't recognize. And then we have the, the test stimuli, the probe stimuli. We want to find out, does he know these details about the crime? Well, we match that. We correlate that with, with either information he knows or information he doesn't know. So the control really takes care of a tremendous amount of variability in the brain responses because we're getting a control. We, we know what his brain does with information. We know exactly what the pattern looks like when he knows the information because we're testing right then and there. Yes, yes, that, may, that makes sense. Now, how does the test hold up on neurologically atypical suspects like psychopaths or mentally ill? Because this, this will be very important if we are able to create a technology or we based on the this approach that you have brain fingerprinting if this technology can be used by all the psychiatrists or you know psychologists or uh, mental counts uh, health counselors all over the world because one of the biggest challenges people face is that uh, these days uh, mentally um, unhealthy the people people who are not mentally well they ha they have challenges and they sometimes uh, create crimes that are really horrendous. I mean, we have seen so many uh, cases like this over the years. So is there a way that this technology can be used to screen all those mentally, uh, mental health, you know, patients? And this, this can be provided, this technology can be provided to the uh, mental health practitioners so they, they can screen and they can identify, they can narrow down, you know, which uh, individuals would be a threat to society? Well, there are, there are two aspects to that question. One is that psychopaths, uh, for example, J.B. Grinder, the serial killer I talked about, he was uh, one of the most mentally unhealthy people I have ever met. He was certainly a, a psychopath. And yet, uh, even a psychopath has this uh, P300 murmur response, even a psychopath is going to notice new information. Even a psychopath is going to know the details about the crime and he's going to recognize those when they come up. They're, uh, with conventional methods of trying to detect uh, whether people are lying or whether they're guilty or whatever, psychopaths don't have the, uh, or sociopaths don't have the same emotional responses as other people. And so in some ways they're more difficult to detect. But when you're detecting information stored in the brain, it really doesn't matter what the emotional response is. So as far as the brain fingerprinting application for detecting criminals and detecting the record of a crime, uh, none of those factors really matter. The mental health of the person doesn't matter. Uh, well, if they're so, uh, if they're so schizophrenic that they're hallucinating and they can't even see the computer screen, then we would know that because we wouldn't be getting any response at all. But as long as they are competent, mentally competent enough to look at the computer screen and read the, read or recognize the pictures or the words, uh, none of those mental health problems will interfere with brain fingerprinting. You asked a second question, can we use this kind of brainwave measurement to uh, help to detect particular mental conditions or mental illness conditions? And the answer to that is yes, we've done this. I, I've, my colleagues and I have published research on that. Uh, that is still in its infancy though. We're still in the early stages of being able to detect 
mental illness based on the different brainwave patterns. There's been uh, there's been considerable progress, and yet there, there, we have a long ways to go before we're going to be able to hook somebody up and measure their brainwaves and say, okay, aha, we have a definitive diagnosis for this. Oh, I hope that you are able to, you know, achieve that because that would be so welcoming to the healthcare community. There are so many complex challenges and mental health uh, disease is just increasing. It is uh, growing so rapidly and uh, it's there are no effective ways from my assessment to be able to control that and we need to figure out a way because everything is tied you know mental health disease and you know security challenges uh, they're all tied together if someone goes and buys gun and then you know tries to start shooting we could have prevented that if we had known that this person has that kind of thoughts in his brain to you know harm other people so it would be very welcoming i hope you are able to uh, make progress on that now let's talk about border security it seems definitely that we can use this technology brain fingerprinting technology at the borders i mean at the airports at the ports you know everywhere to so that we can effectively screen if we find someone suspicious that we can screen and uh, we can figure out if that person who is trying to enter our country has some you know bad intentions to harm come and uh, do some harm and that is uh, right now we um, united states we are facing a big you know challenge because of that because of the uh, new immigration uh, requirements that is being posed and uh, certain bans that are being imposed on certain countries to prevent them from entering that is because of the security risk that our government is uh, thinking that you know the passengers or people coming from those countries uh, you know, are going to bring those securities to our country and to prevent those kind of uh, terrorist attacks or security breaches, we, the, the government decided to, you know, stop the immigration or people coming from those countries. So uh, talk, this is probably, this perhaps the right time to talk about this, that if we can use this technology effectively, then the decision makers should take it seriously and uh, talk about how we can advance this and how we can make this more easily available to border security agents so that they can use it effectively and then we don't have to create such you know broad spectrum bans to prevent all the you know people coming from those countries so do you think that we this would be uh, with the current security challenges at the airports that this test and approach would make a difference yes it could make a tremendous difference and i'll get a little more specific about that in the the 9/11 terrorists, uh, Charlie Hebdo, Boston Marathon bombing, Fort Hood, in uh, I can name dozens, including 9/11, of major terrorist incidents here in the U.S. and uh, in Europe and around the world. In the vast majority of those cases, the perpetrators, and again I include 9/11 in this, at least some of the perpetrators in these attacks were on the radar of our authorities. They were known to authorities as terrorist suspects, but we didn't have enough information, enough evidence to take action until it was too late. So we have people who are already suspects, but we don't have enough information. They then commit major terrorist acts, and that includes 9-11. We knew about some of the 9-11 terrorists beforehand, but we just didn't have quite enough information. The difference that this could make, that brain fingerprinting could make, is that when we suspect someone of terrorist connections or terrorist plans, but we don't have enough evidence, we can conduct a brain fingerprinting test, and we can either clear them, turns out that they, they don't have the records stored in their brain of the relevant terrorist connections or plans, or we can catch them before they commit the terrorist act. And we could have done that in vast majority of the uh, major terrorist incidents that have taken place, in, including 9-11 and since 9-11 in the US and in Western Europe and throughout the world. So it could make a fundamental difference because we can't throw everybody who looks a little bit suspicious in prison. Uh, that would be violating the rights that we're trying to defend. On the other hand, when we don't have enough evidence, but we suspect someone, it turns out that those people have been committing terrorist acts, major terrorist acts all around the world. Well, now brain fingerprinting, the difference between 
fingerprint can make is that it can make that distinction. If somebody's a suspect, we can find out, well, do they really have the record stored in their brain that would indicate that they're a serious to security or, or not, in which case we can let them get on with their lives. Now, with respect to border security and immigration, uh, I don't think it would be practical to conduct brain fingerprint tests on three million people. But what we can do is when there is some indication from any one of another, uh, any one of many other sources, if there's some indication that this person might be a suspicious person, might be have particular terrorist connections or have committed terrorist crimes or be have a terrorist affiliations when there's some suspicion of that then we can take this person aside uh, a, a percentage of the of people who are who are suspicious for one reason or another and we can conduct brain fingerprint tests on them so that would dramatically increase our ability to distinguish between innocent people and people who are not only may look a little bit suspicious, but in fact, who are terrorists or who have plans to harm our country or to harm people in another country. Yes, yes, no, that makes sense. But so it, it looks like that to it, it's not uh, practical or viable to do this test on large number of people, as you just mentioned. So that brings to my second question is that how can we develop security applications that can be used on large populations from a distance without having to go through individual testing, without uh, having to go through putting all those things on the head and uh, having an ability to uh, get access those uh, memories and uh, to uh, get the readings on the brain waves. Is there any way, for example, there is a Super Bowl going, and is there any way a terrorist has got in, in spite of, you know, uh, the current, you know, traditional security measures that they do at the gate, they, it has gotten in. And now we want to identify where exactly in the stadium he is. There is no way to stop the game. So what is there a way that this technology can be developed further so that we can screen large populations from a distance? without to having to go through individual testing and to identify pinpoint that that person has bad thoughts in his brain and he's going to try to, he or she is going to try to you know uh, do some criminal activity would it be possible in the coming years that you develop something like that well yes it would be possible uh, when you have large groups of people for example at at the super bowl or or at border crossings and so on. Yes, there are large groups, but you don't actually have to consider them all at once. They can go through in, in, an, in an individual one at a time stream. So you can, you can the, the necessary capability is to be able to screen very large numbers of people, but not simultaneously, but one at a time as they come through. Uh, I mean, e even when you have thousands of thousands of people, you can have them going through something single file. Now, it is possible to measure brain activity from a distance. Uh, it is uh, it is very challenging. <laughs> uh, it, there is a signal to noise problem. Uh, we'll, always, we're trying to distinguish the signal that's interesting to us, that's useful information, from all of the other activity that's taking place. So it is possible to measure brain responses from a distance. It's possible to pick up people's brain responses and other things, uh, their their posture, their the, the uh, responses of the eyes, their facial expressions, and so on. There are metrics that can be applied to large numbers of people very quickly. And I, I think the the best solution is going to be to use some of these quick metric, quick but not entire, I was going to say quick and dirty, it's not dirty, it's just quick and not all that accurate metrics initially. And then when somebody uh, is flagged on that kind of a test, then we can take that person aside and spend more time on them, give them a brain fingerprinting test. It's sort of like in the medical field, x-ray versus MRI. You, you, you take an x-ray, oh, it looks like there might be something really wrong here. Now we'll spend more time, effort, and money doing an MRI to look into it more deeply. Brain fingerprinting is more like the MRI. The, the more accurate uh, procedure that takes, that takes more time to do. Yes, that makes sense. We, we, we probably will have to use multiple technologies uh, and not, you know, waste so much resources on uh, brain fingerprinting. I understand that. Now, in the there is also another, you know, uh, 
big uh, problem going on with security is the corporate security that especially when it comes to cyber warfare uh, there are in this digital global age entities across you know nation irrespective of industries or government or organizations or academia they are going through security hacks or data theft many a times uh, it is the employees or the contractors who are behind the security breach so can this technology be used effectively to screen the employees or contractors for security related crimes yes it certainly can and as when we were talking about cybercrime, this came up a little bit a few minutes ago. <clears throat> if a person is smart and very sophisticated, they can leave no trace on the computer of the crime that they've committed or even the crimes that they're planning. However, there is a comprehensive record of that crime stored in their brain. They know exactly what they did. Uh, industrial uh, espionage is very information intensive. Uh, it's it's you know it's not like it's not like stealing a car. It's it's very information intensive. The people who are perpetrating those crimes, they know a lot of things that the person who didn't perpetrate that crime doesn't know. So brain fingerprinting is ideally suited for that kind of an investigation to find out who who has committed that kind of a crime or even who is planning that kind of a crime because that record is going to be very comprehensive, very information rich and stored in the brain. Yes, yes, true. Now, let, let's go to a different topic, biometrics. Okay. We are currently, a uh, lot of advances are happening in biometrics. We, we are trying to come up with authentication techniques that cannot be hacked, that cannot be taken over by, you know, uh, hackers or, you know, cyber criminals. And uh, there are a lot of advances happening, retina, you know, test or uh, many other tests uh, thumb t that we are using, thumbprint. And uh, do you think that brain fingerprinting technique would be a better identification than that based on the retina and all other things that are in development? And what potential do you see brain fingerprinting playing in uh, overall broadly the biometrics sector? I think brain fingerprinting is complementary to the biometrics. The, the biometrics will tell you if this person who's sitting in front of you matches his ID. If this person is who he says who he says he is, he says he's, he's, he's Joe and the ID says he's Joe and we can we can tell by biometrics that this is the person who he is who he says he is. But what biometrics will not tell you is whether that person is a trained terrorist. It won't tell you whether that person has committed crimes. It wouldn't won't tell you whether that person is a bomb maker. So brain fingerprinting is complementary to, to, to biometrics. Biometrics will tell you, okay, this we, we, we've, we've got the guy we think we have, but what brain fingerprinting will tell you is, okay, does this guy have the record of terrorist acts? Does this guy have the record of terrorist crimes stored in his brain? Is he a member of a terrorist cell? Does he have that unique information? So the two would really work hand in hand. You can identify who a person is, uh, whether it's the, the person, the actual human being that matches the ID card with biometrics, but you can determine whether that person is a terrorist or a criminal with brain fingerprinting. Let's not, I mean, it's not about terrorists or criminals. For example, I'm sitting here, I want to log into my laptop or computer. And uh, currently we are using passwords or we use our PIN or we use our thumbprint to get onto the computer. Uh -huh. Or, you know, the, there are advances also that they do the retina scan. But all of, the, all of those uh, different, you know, technologies or different way of uh, authentication, they have the, you know, vulnerabilities in that. None of them are, you know, 100% secured. And uh, it could be taken over by hackers, you know, in many different ways. These days, even if by just having a picture like this, if I pose like this and the hackers can get a, uh, print uh, based on just that, you know, from a distance. They don't yes. even have to, I don't have to be closer to them. So there are a lot of challenges. These all can be hacked. And uh, right. there are, you know, there is a thought process that, you know, brain waves, brain, you know, information uh, access like that. And, you know, only my brain would be able to, you know, uh, if we have a technology, then that would be able to log in because, you know, if any nobody else's brain would be able to have the memories or have, you know, certain waves or signals 
uh, that you know is required to log in so would that not be an effective authentication uh, method so that even if we lose our smartphones or we lose our you know ipads that the security breach is not there because nobody will be able to log into that yes uh, your brain is unique my brain is unique your the information stored in your brain is unique and very very comprehensive uh, same with anybody so potentially potentially that could be done now i'm not saying that that we have a technology that we can roll out today that does that but certainly from the point of view of the basic science involved yes it could be you could develop a an identification a biometric technology based on brain responses that would be extremely effective and that no one except the right brain could actually uh, hack yes I or, or use that. I right. hope you, you and your colleagues at your laboratory come up with this technology because uh, especially for cybersecurity, we need that so badly. And now everyone is using the smartphone for banking and all the, you know, very sensitive, you know, uh, I mean, uh, data is being transferred through that. So if we do need a very secure, very secure way of authentication and now, Coming to the another topic that is, I worry about this a lot, is the synthetic biology. The, we are, you know, going towards bioeconomy, where now we have the capability that any computer scientist who is a really smart, you know, very, very smart, they can sit and, you know, de design and create a whole genome. They can take pieces of genes from uh, humans, pieces of genes from something else. They can write, you know, the extra code, and they can they can put it in an empty, you know, cell, and create a whole new, you know, organism. And in the coming years, probably we'll be able to create whole new species based on the advances that are happening. Uh, now, we are at a point that none of these things are going to be will be able to regulate that will be able to control that sitting in any part of the world someone can create an organism we would not know about it and then they can try to destroy the agriculture of the whole country or they can send a virus or a pathogen any any kind of pathogen virus bacteria or anything and they could wipe out, try to wipe out the population of that country how do we meet with this kind of complex challenges how do we identify so what my question is that would we be able to come up with a technology based on the advances of science in brainwave science and all the advances that are going with brain mapping technology all over the world i mean there are initiatives in united states there is an initiative in europe and china probably is going towards that this year would we be able to come up with an effective way of managing those kind of complex security risks? Well, I can't sit here this morning and uh, give you a comprehensive answer to uh, how we would manage those complex security risks. And you've, you've, raised, you've raised a number of points uh, having to do with security and also having to do with what human life is about and what uh, and what uh, what nature is about and and what we should be interfering with and what we shouldn't be interfering with and all of those are are profound and interesting questions uh, i can address one one small part of that and that is uh, again with respect to identifying individuals who have been involved in some illicit use of technology we can do that by detecting the records stored in their brain with brain fingerprinting that's that's only one small piece of the of the of the puzzle or and there are, there are many challenges i mean science is always a double edged sword you you develop something new and it can be used in ways that are positive and and then there's usually some way that that it can create some imbalance or other that we then have to 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 think about so brain fingerprinting can address a, a small part of that and there's a lot more that we as scientists and and we as human beings have to think about and we have to, and have to consider and i uh, my hat is off to you that you're you're thinking not only about what's happening now but about what can happen and may be happening in the near future and how we're going to deal with that yes i mean we have to that uh, that is something that should concern each and every scientist each and every decision maker all across nations because how are we going to manage these risks that are coming our way so how do you 
how would you wish your technology could be used by the security community? What would you like to tell them? All right. I would like to say a couple of things. First of all, with brain fingerprinting, there is no need for anybody, any security enforcement organization, to think that someone can get away with anything anymore. If they have, if a person has committed a crime or even planned a crime, participated in the planning of a crime, that record is going to be stored in their brain and we can detect that. So we have a major, a major new weapon in our arsenal. Another thing is that it's important also to be able to identify innocent people because if a person is accused of a serious crime and there's not enough evidence, his life may be ruined, his or her life may be ruined, even, even, if, even if they're never convicted. So another thing that I would like to see, I'd like to see whenever there is any kind of a security breach, I would like to see brain fingerprinting brought up as the, the, the first response. Okay, we can find out who did this because we can detect that by the record stored in their brain. Whenever somebody is falsely accused of a security violation, I would like to see them knowledgeable enough. I'd like to see information out there in the public so people can say, wait a minute, I didn't do this. I don't know anything about it. Don't tell me anything about it. Give me a brain fingerprinting test and I'll prove to you I don't have that record stored in my brain. So it can help the authorities to catch the bad guys and it can also help innocent people to show that in fact they're innocent and get their lives back. I would like brain fingerprinting to be widely enough known that everybody recognizes that this is a technology we can apply. And when that takes place, it will also be a deterrent. Because people now, especially in cybercrime, they know they can get away with it because they can wipe all the records off the computers and do it from the other side of the world and nobody's gonna know and there's no evidence. Well, there is evidence, it's stored in their brain. Now we can detect that. So as brain fingerprinting becomes more widely known, I would like to see it be a major deterrent to people who are contemplating committing a crime because they realize now they can't necessarily get away with it. Once we suspect them, we can catch them. Yes, very true, very true. Now, what would you tell young, curious minds who wants to get involved in brain research for the safety and security of their nation? What would you tell them? Well, what, what I did is I went to Harvard and I went to... Uh, I went to Harvard University. I got a, a degree in neuroscience. I went to the University of Illinois. I got my PhD. And then I focused on the human brain. I focused on how we can detect information stored in the human brain. And I, I, I'd like to, to review that a little bit more. You're asking what I can tell to young, young people, young scientists who want to get involved in security. Well, first of all, what I did is I, I went to Harvard University, I got my PhD, I studied the brain. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in security, anybody who's interested in science, to get involved in studying the brain. The brain is the, the greatest frontier in human life. It's where the most progress can be made. It's where the most difference can be made. So I encourage people, go into neuroscience, study yes. the brain. and begin with getting a very good solid academic background in in neuroscience take the extra time to get a to get a phd to get a college degree and then having done that i would encourage people to make new discoveries discover things that i haven't discovered discover things that i haven't even thought about that nobody else has thought about because that's where the progress is going to come whereas young minds get well trained understand the brain, understand human life, and then think creatively. Don't just do what's been done before, but think creatively to come up with new th ideas, new technologies that are needed and that will make a breakthrough in human life and not, not only just in security, but in human life as a whole. Yes, that is absolutely true. I mean, that is what we need. I am trying personally, on personal front, I'm trying to convince my son, who is a brilliant mind, to go in neuroscience. But uh, so far, I haven't succeeded in that, so I'll keep trying. But thank you so much, Dr. Farwell, for participating in Risk Roundup today. 
we appreciate your thoughtful insight in brain mapping, brain fingerprinting, and overall security. Our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on brain research and its future. Even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to understand the complex neural interconnections or prevent a crime from happening or identify a criminal for the crime that has already been committed or innovate based on the discussion we had today. This risk round of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you very much. Yes. So if we are interested in making sure that security is maintained in cyberspace, geospace, and space, and that the criminals are found proactively. Any idea, innovation, or technology that can help us make a proactive determination of possibility of crime or help us identify the criminals after the crime happens is welcoming. The security community needs to know about it. It is my hope that security community takes a closer look at brain fingerprinting. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they all walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com. And do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.